Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Ian Kerner. Dr. Kerner is a licensed psychotherapist and a nationally recognized sexuality counselor who specializes in sex therapy, couples therapy, and working with individuals on a range of relational issues. He's often quoted as an expert in various media with appearances on The Today Show, The Dr. Oz Show, and NPR. He also regularly contributes to CNN Health and lectures frequently on topics related to sex and relationships. Ian is also the author of several best-selling books, including She Comes First, A Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman. Dr. Kerner, I was reading your book. It's absolutely profound. I, I mean, as I'm approaching 40 years old and I learned more about sex and female anatomy than probably from anything else that I've ever experienced. So I have a ton of questions. The first one is, and because I, what, what I want to do is transfer some of this knowledge to the people who are listening to this. Um, so Dr. Kerner, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do? Uh, sure. Well, uh, you know, first off, Chris, I'm really grateful for your kind words about She Comes First. It's a, it's a book that's near and dear. I wrote it probably when I was just a little bit younger than you are, um, in 2002 and 2003. And, uh, that book came from a very, uh, personal place, not only in my work as a sex therapist, um, but because it really grew out of my own struggles with sexual dysfunction. Um, I spent most of my youth um, struggling with a very common sexual problem, premature ejaculation, uh, but I felt really debilitated and crippled by it. And in fact, when I was in college, I had really completely retreated from the world of dating and intimacy because uh, it just seemed sort of hopeless based on my sexual problems. I had a ton of desire to be sexual. I just knew that uh, when it came down to it, I would fail and wouldn't be able to perform. So that actually led me uh, to seek the help of a sex therapist, or at least a psychotherapist with a background, background in sexuality. And while the sessions didn't really uh, completely cure the problem, um, or even necessarily help me manage the problem, it really opened up a new universe of being able to talk about sex in ways that I had never learned how to do as a young man. And so I really owe it to those early experiences in sex therapy with really um, changing my life. Um, and that's what also really led me uh, to pursue becoming a sex therapist. It wasn't my first goal out of college, but as I was sort of going through life and figuring out what I loved and what I didn't love, uh, that became a, a more tenable path. And so I became a uh, first, I actually became certified as a sexuality uh, counselor and uh, pursued uh, education and then eventually got licensed as a psychotherapist. And today I'm a, you know, a psychotherapist uh, with a specialization in sex therapy. I see about 35, 40 patients a week uh, here in this office. I teach other uh, therapists how to practice sex therapy, um, and it's pretty much my life's work. I think it's absolutely incredible. I, there's so many anxieties and fears around 
<laughs> We're in New York City, so. Yeah. I don't, there's some construction on the street happening outside. <laughs> so I hope that's going to be okay. It's, uh, we'll, we'll be good. Um, <laughs> but there's so many anxieties and fears around sex. I mean, I think some of these are probably, and you would know better than me, are probably a form of birth control when we're younger, right? <laughs> yeah. But then we get a little bit older and having a sex, a, a healthy sex life is just, it's part of being a healthy human being, right? It's absolutely essential. And, and I think for a lot of people who are listening, I know, including myself, I'm, there's a lot of sort of things that have come up over the years and, and things I've worked through, things that other traumatic events pop up and other things that happen. And as I said before, you're, I found your book absolutely incredibly profound because you have this amazing way of communicating things that I just never understood. And and I think it's so powerful. I mean, if you're listening to this, usually I tell people you should buy the book at the end, but you should buy this book now while you're listening to this podcast um, is absolutely awesome. So thank you for writing the book. Um, it's incredible. Thank you. And you know, again, um, I wasn't able to really make love to uh, my female partners in the traditional sense of sort of how it was talked about in the locker room or talked about amongst my friends or even depicted in movies in terms of what I call the intercourse discourse, that men should be able to have uh, maintain intercourse in a particular way. And so what She Comes First was really about was me discovering uh, my own sort of unique sex script in which um, I was able to work around my problems and really bring all of myself and make love to women, um, but in ways that at the time I think were considered sort of non-traditional. I mean, this leads perfectly into the first question I wanted to ask you. Um, I really want to focus the first section of your book because there's just so much content. But the first question I had for people who are listening, because I think there's a lot of mythology around this, how long does it take the average men to orgasm versus the average woman? Okay, well, I mean, that's really um, subjective. It depends a lot on the people and, uh, you know, where you are uh, in the process of um, dating somebody. Uh, for example, uh, there have been some studies that have shown that the more a woman dates a guy becomes more comfortable with him sexually, the more easily or likely she is to potentially be orgasmic, whereas in the first few dates, sometimes women aren't orgasmic at all for different reasons. But, you know, in general, men are able to maintain penetration penetrative thrusting for about two to three minutes um, and so uh, it's not the longest amount of time in the world as, as somebody that suffered with premature ejaculation two to three minutes was actually a, a very long time um, but when you consider that uh, women often require more than two to three minutes of persistent clitoral stimulation and that in fact intercourse sometimes doesn't stimulate the clitoris at all because there's a distance it's called the clitoral vaginal distance between the clitoris and the entrance to the vagina in some ways it doesn't matter how long it takes uh, a man to orgasm because if he's focused on intercourse if he's focused on penetrative thrusting if he's not focused on persistent consistent direct clitoral stimulation in some ways it doesn't matter if he can last two minutes or last 10 minutes his partner is probably not going to experience 
pleasure in the form of an orgasm. Um, so yes, the average man can maintain penetrative thrusting for two to three minutes. This is really a mean, it's an average. So there are certainly men who can last, uh, maintain, uh, you know, ejaculatory control for far longer than that. And there are men who can maintain ejaculatory control for far less than um, that. Um, but in general, most women do require more than uh, two to three minutes of uh, direct clitoral stimulation. Yeah, in your book, there was an estimate of around 21 minutes. And whether it's 10 minutes or 21 minutes or 30 minutes, it's a big difference between two minutes, yeah. right? And so I, want, I definitely want to get more into that. Um, and, and how you bridge the gap because you have some great ideas. For yeah, it's the number one, still the number one complaint that I hear from women and uh, from female patients is what can I do to have an orgasm uh, during sex? Why don't we engage in sex that provides more pleasure? Um, why can't we last long enough for me to have an orgasm as well? So uh, although the book's almost 20 years old, it's still a very perennial question. Yeah, I think you said in the book that it's the number one question that the editors of Cosmo receive. Yeah, yeah, and I wrote that back in, you know, the first draft of that book was written in 2002. Uh, it remains a, a very popular bestseller in the area of sexuality, but it is still a question that's at the forefront of uh, women's minds. It makes sense, right? And, and I want to get more into that. Um, before I do, I want to talk, I want to ask you, some questions about sort of the makeup of the clitoris. One of the things you said in the book is that it's made of the same tissue as a penis um, and that it fills with blood during arousal, but that it's very different. Can you explain that? Well, you know, when, it, when, when, when an embryo is, is gestating in the womb, uh, it's not until about month three that it's really determined whether or not that embryo is going to become uh, a man or uh, male or female. And so the same embryonic material needs to be used to be able to create uh, male genitalia or female genitalia. And all of that tissue and embryonic material gets used just in different ways. So in men, uh, genitals tend to grow outwards. We have uh, penises with uh, a head of a penis and a shaft of a penis and uh, uh, testicles. Uh, in women, uh, much of the um, genitals uh, grow internally. So it's really the difference between external genitalia in men and internal genitalia um, in women. Um, and so all of the same embryonic material is used. Uh, much of it uh, is um, tissue that has nerve endings and that can respond to um, stimulation. I think the mistake that a lot of men make is assuming um, that the vagina or the vaginal canal is the source of pleasure for women. In fact, the vaginal canal has uh, probably the fewest nerve endings that actually contribute uh, to pleasure. It's really the clitoris um, and externally, um, we don't see much of the clitoris. We really just only see the head of the clitoris, um, which is that little sort of, uh, um, bump, uh, above the vaginal opening. But if you think of that as sort of like the head of the penis and imagine an internal structure that's, um, growing, uh, or inside, uh, inside, inside a woman, 
then you realize that it's a much vaster structure and the clitoris um, uh, encompasses different parts of uh, the pelvic area and can be stimulated uh, in different ways. But just pure uh, intercourse, penis inside a vagina, really doesn't do much to stimulate the clitoral structures. Yeah, in, in the in the book, you talk about that sort of your hate towards Freud, and I, I want to get to that later on because he perpetuated some of this mythology. Um, but you, one of the things I found fascinating is you were saying that there's some literature, some a movement that towards this idea that the clitoris has 18 different parts. Yeah, yeah, I really encourage men to develop sexual clitoracy, uh, to use like my own puns, to not be. Uh, Ill-clitorate to really understand that the clitoris is the powerhouse of the female orgasm and that the clitoris does not respond to penetration of the vagina. Not to say that there aren't parts of the clitoris because as you said, uh, it's, uh, I forgot the exact name, but it's like the, uh, Federation of uh, Feminist Sexual Health Workers, um, you know, back in the early days of the uh, sexual revolution, actually going back to the 60s and 70s, really championed uh, this idea of doing more research uh, to create an accurate uh, portrayal of uh, female sexuality. So, um, you know, for example, uh, parts of the clitoris or the back end roots of the clitoris do um, surround urethral sponge um, that does press against the ceiling of the vagina. So that is an area that's frequently known as the G-spot. And so the G-spot does respond to certain types of um, pressure through through penetration and it can be penetration with a penis so the g-spot does respond um, to intercourse but again even there you're not actually stimulating the vagina you're stimulating the g-spot which is the back end roots of the clitoris so in the book I go through sort of all 18 parts of the clitoris based on not my own research but other documented um, research and I really encourage men to get clitorate and to really develop a different conception of female sexuality and to understand that um, there are sensitive nerve endings in the labia, the inner labia, the outer labia. There is the clitoral glands, which is the part of the clitoris that's most uh, visible. Um, there is uh, other areas like uh, the, va the the clitoral hood and the front commissure, commissure, excuse me. All of these are different parts of the clitoris that do respond to different types of um, uh, pressure and stimulation. And one of the things that I hear from men frequently that they appreciate my about my book is that I didn't just sort of put out a a philosophy or to say get clitorate, but I really do in the book try and break down different sort of sex scripts or different sex routines um, that really help men to stimulate the entire clitoral network or all parts of the clitoris. Page 58 of the book has a breakdown of each of the different parts and you talk about them in detail. Yeah. And I, it was absolutely amazing. Great. Um, well, good. Was, so if, you, if you're listening to this, you can turn to page 58 if you already have the book. Um, I mean, I can tell you I've gotten a lot of men who have been very thankful for the book. Um, uh, I've heard from women over the years who have uh, given the book to their partners or learned things about their own sexuality that they didn't fully understand or how to communicate that better to men. 
And over the years, I've actually surprisingly got lots of um, thank you emails from moms who have given the book to their sons going off to college so that their sons know how to be <laughs> good, caring, respectful lovers. It's great. I mean, in the book, you talk about how many, I mean, the percentage of women who are frustrated sexually. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's, I mean, it's astonishing. And uh, I do want to go into sort of some of the reasons why there's this disconnect and some of your solutions for solving that. But before I do, you started to get into this, but I want you to talk more about it. How do men and women orgasm differently? How do men and women orgasm differently? Well, men really, um, you know, in both cases, um, blood builds up in the genitals. Um, so there are actually a few processes that go into an orgasm in both men and women. There's the first process, which is blood flow to the genitals. That's vasocongestion. Um, and so stimulating the genitals, um, stimulating the nerve endings throughout the body that contribute to arousal, that stimulates blood flow to the genitals. The other process that engages is called myotonia, which is um, the tightening of the musculature throughout the body. And so there's a, an increased tightening of the overall musculature of the body, especially in the pelvic region. And then the third process that happens is that um, the brain's natural opiate system gets activated. And so when somebody has an orgasm, there's actually three processes happening at once. All of that blood has built up and sort of reached a tipping point and is being released from the genitals. In men, the buildup happens much more quickly, the blood flow to the genitals, and, there, and the release of blood flow from the genitals happens much more quickly. So in men, they often get aroused more quickly, and then post-ejaculation usually are just beat and done for a little while. In women, the process of blood flow to the genitals is slower going in, so it takes more time for them to get aroused generally, and the process of blood exiting the genitals is much slower. So for women, uh, after a first orgasm, there's still more blood flowing in the genitals. They're able to actually, in many cases, be multi-orgasmic. Um, they can, if, 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 if left unstimulated after a first orgasm, a woman will go to the pre-aroused state, but women also have a natural capacity that men do not have to have multiple orgasms, basically because there's still blood flowing in the genitals that can be used to reactivate arousal. The other thing that happens upon orgasm in both men and women is that all of that muscular tension gets released, right? So you can imagine the more aroused you are, the more sort of tight your body is kind of getting and focused, and then that musculature all gets released. So there's also pleasant sensations of sort of the release of tension from the muscles. Probably the biggest thing that happens in both men and women, though, is upon orgasm, is that the brain's natural opiate system really gets triggered, and that's where those feelings of sort of euphoria and pleasure and just sort of being out of your body temporarily happen. So all three of those processes uh, happen in both men and women. Again, I would say the main difference for women is that blood flows in more slowly to the genitals and exits more slowly. But the other major difference is that men reach a point of ejaculatory inevitability uh, where without any further stimulation a guy is going to have an ejaculation 
and an orgasm. Um, and so many men just, you know, once they're there, they can't stop. It's like we're driving over the edge of the cliff and the brakes aren't working at this point. We're going over whether I want to stop or not. For women, um, they don't really experience a point of ejaculatory inevitability. Um, so for many women, even at the point of having an orgasm or during an orgasm, they can lose the orgasm if the stimulation isn't maintained. And so a lot of women will complain, I was so close to having an orgasm and then something happened. He, we changed position or something, you know, distracted me. And so unlike men, women can really lose an orgasm, uh, even at the point in which the orgasm is really about to happen or is happening. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it's great. Um, how does a, a guy like keep this from happening, right? Is it, is it just like persistence? Is it like consistency? Is it, is it just going to happen? Well, I, I wrote the book, She Comes First. And, you know, if you think about the title, um, I wrote it through the lens of somebody that suffered from premature ejaculation. And so I sort of wrote it through the philosophy of, you know, hey, women have this multi-orgasmic capacity. Women can also lose orgasms. Women complain about not getting enough clitoral stimulation. Why not take the sexual approach of always giving a female partner an orgasm first? Um, um, and dispensing with the idea of like a simultaneous orgasm. And so my philosophy has always been uh, through many years of having different partners, um, again, working through a specific lens of having a sexual problem, but I think it's generalizable, which is um, create a lot of pleasure for your partner, enjoy that pleasure, allow yourself to get aroused by that pleasure. I think what a lot of men lose sight of is that um, there's so much pleasure and arousal to be captured and cultivated just in giving pleasure. If you really allow yourself to get outside of your own performance and your own head and really just get into what is happening in her body, what's happening in her face, what's happening in her in her voice. I mean, if you really allow yourself to get aroused by somebody else's pleasure, it's the essence of uh, mindfulness, of really being so present and so connected to somebody else's pleasure. And so my philosophy has always been quite simple. Um, give my partner a lot of pleasure, enjoy her pleasure, give her an orgasm or give her uh, co-create an orgasm with her and uh, then use the pleasure that I've cultivated in giving pleasure to continue with the pleasure journey. And so that could mean having my own orgasm um, very fast on the heels of her orgasm, which for me was never a problem being somebody who suffered from premature ejaculation or um, enjoy her multi-orgasmic capacity and, you know, let things continue. But I think that the travesty and the tragedy, the tragedy and the travesty uh, would be um, a partner who wants to have an orgasm during sex and doesn't. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, if you're having a sexual relationship with somebody and they're not getting their needs met, 
the relationship isn't going to work and and they're going to find those needs uh, yeah i find it infuriating sometimes because men say that orgasm matters to them more than to their partners or that women don't need orgasms in the same way and sometimes you know the the magazines and the media pick up on that and say well men are very orgasm focused and women are interested in more the quality of the connection and i think that that's sort of bullshit men are interested in the quality of connection as well but who isn't interested in having an orgasm who isn't interested in having all of that blood flow that's been built up released from the genitals who isn't interested in having that out of body sort of euphoric experience and i can tell you that time and time again i've worked with couples where when one partner is not consistently having orgasms it leads to tremendous sexual dissatisfaction so i would not in any way discount women as being less interested in orgasm than men one of the things that you talk about in the book is you, well you give some clarity around the types of orgasms because i've even heard women female partners say well like I vaginally orgasm, but not clitorally orgasm. But you say, well, no, it's, it's all clitoris-based, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, sure. Like, so as I said, the clitoris is vast. It has 18 parts, some of which are directly, you can directly stimulate, some of which are indirectly stimulated through uh, just nerve pathways and, and stimulation and going along different um, nerve pathways. But, you know, as I said, the clitoral network is vast and, and, and there are parts of the clitoris can, that can be stimulated um, through, um, uh, through intercourse or through vaginal entry. And so I think the clitoris is absolutely the powerhouse of the female orgasm. I think it would be very rare for a woman to be able to have an orgasm without clitoral stimulation, although not impossible. And so you hear from a lot of women who say, well, we have intercourse and we have a routine where um, he'll have his orgasm first and then I'll often either masturbate or I'm masturbating during sex or I'm using a vibrator during sex. But generally, uh, clitoral stimulation is being coupled in some way with intercourse. Some women will say the only position I can actually orgasm through is the woman on top position because that provides a lot of direct clitoral stimulation that a woman is in control of. And it's certainly not rare for a woman to say, and I love, I love intercourse. I love when I'm on top and I'm able to have an orgasm because the feeling of a penis inside of a vagina can also feel uh, quite nice if a woman's amply aroused and there's a good match in terms of uh, size. Occasionally a guy can be, have a penis that's too small or too large and that causes issues. Uh, but in general, the average penis does just fine. Um, but it's quite possible to stimulate uh, the G-spot um, in combination with stimulating the head of the clitoris. So you'll find that some women will say, well, I only sort of had a, a clitoral orgasm. I've never really heard two women women complain about the quality of a, of a clitoral orgasm. Some women will say, I really enjoy... Um, having an orgasm during intercourse, often when they're on top or there's some kind of combined uh, clitoral stimulation. So that might sometimes get referred to as sort of a a blended orgasm. Um, As I said, the vagina sort of loses its sensitivity once you're two to three inches inside the vagina, but that doesn't mean that there's a complete loss of sensitivity. Um, So uh, the feeling of being filled, uh, one's cervix being um, potentially stimulated, just the emotional uh, meaning that we ascribe to intercourse 
and the emotional transactions that happen through making love, um, intercourse can be a very meaningful act. I'm not trying to, you know, discount it. I'm just saying, don't put all of your eggs in the intercourse, you know, basket, um, so to speak. So there's lots of different ways of um, stimulating the clitoris, but, you know, make no mistake, the clitoris is the powerhouse of the female orgasm. All roads lead back to the clitoris. This is sort of something that I didn't write down as a question, but it's a question I do have for you. One of the things you hear in the locker room growing up is that women can orgasm without physical contact. Is that true or is that a myth? Um, well, I think it's true in both um, men and women that there is uh, physical stimulation. It's often called reflex-based stimulation, right? If you rub on genitals long enough, something will generally happen. So there's certainly physical stimulation, but there have been, you know, we you don't need studies to know this, that there, we also have the capacity to get mentally aroused. Uh, men and women, you can walk down the street and you can feel completely turned on by what's happening. I mean, this is summer in New York. It's a sexy city. You can get very turned on. Uh, uh, men get spontaneous erections um, all the time or get uncomfortable uh, erections. Women can fantasize. Men can fantasize. So the brain is a very powerful sexual organ whether or not um, people can just use um, brain-based or psychogenic stimulation without physical stimulation is another question it's, it's there have been rare cases uh, in which it's been documented that women can give themselves orgasms um, uh, without any physical stimulation in general I think good sex requires a combination of physical and psychogenic stimulation and the main thing that I see in my practice is a lack of psychological stimulation as part of the sex script between two partners so generally couples come in and they're say having a problem they don't feel sexually compatible they're bored they don't feel aroused enough one or both partners are not having orgasm and I'll ask them to go through their sex script and tell me sort of what happens typically when they have sex and one thing that I've noticed across the board is that there's often a lack of uh, psychological stimulation. There's a lack of fantasy. There's a lack of um, novelty. There's a lack of uh, communication. There's a lack of sexual talk or language or sexy commentary. And so I will often advise couples to think about how to incorporate more psychological stimulation into their sex. What would be like an example of something a guy might say that would potentially do this for the girl that he's with we're talking about psychological yeah. stimulation um you know it depends on the the relationship it depends on the comfort level i think that there are um sort of uh two types of psychological stimulation there's face-to-face -face stimulation and side by side side by side is sometimes the easiest not always the easiest place to start but like, you know, side by side might be like a couple that watches porn together. I'm a big fan of uh, the ethical porn and feminist porn and couples porn. But some couples may be uncomfortable sharing a fantasy with each other, role playing or really expressing their own fantasies. But they're comfortable watching fantasies together or reading erotica together. Um, so sometimes you want to pursue um, side by side psychological stimulation um 
face-to-face stimulation, I mean, I think it starts simply. In some cases, it's being able to share a fantasy with your partner, let them know how you're thinking about them sexually, how you're eroticizing them as you're fooling around and hooking up and starting to get sexual. It may be commenting on the sex you're having, commenting on what you're enjoying about the sex and what you're enjoying about your partner's body. Uh, It could be sharing, as I said, sharing a fantasy. It could be role-playing. A lot of couples love um, power play. Um, I think the main thing that I'm I'm saying is that um, sex has a language to it. Um, I mean, if you think about it, just being able to share a fantasy can really trigger a physiological response. That's very unique. There aren't many topics that we can talk about that actually trigger uh, arousal or a physiological response. I guess sometimes our words can provoke anger or fear, um, but sexual language has the real power and potential to contribute um, to the, uh, the process of arousal. And we go through life often forming these relationships with people that are very respectful and very transparent and very collaborative and very loving. And we really want to focus on how to be great communicators. And that's important. But make no mistake, sex also has a language of its own where we want to enjoy fantasy, we want to enjoy power, we want to be eroticized, sexualized, and objectified in ways that we can't often in other aspects of our life. So sex prevent, presents a tremendous opportunity to employ a new vocabulary. I think it's an incredible answer. You talk about in your book about the different languages that men and women use, right? And so you're talking about just the communication together, but even taking one step or two steps before that point, um, the idea that guys are constantly talking about going hard and deep. And for women, it's a, it's a different language. And it's important to understand the language that they use so that we can understand how to please them. Yeah, I, I think the main difference in language stems from actually there are two different desire paradigms or desire frameworks. So men really often experience spontaneous desire, spontaneous desire. Guys see something sexy, guy's girlfriend comes out of the shower and she looks hot and he's thinking, I'd like to have sex with her. And in fact, his whole arousal platform is getting activated. So it's as simple as sometimes like flipping a light switch. I'm not trying to make male sexuality simple because I deal with the complexities of it in so many ways, but men do have the capacity to experience spontaneous desire. Wow, I just saw something sexy on the internet. I'm gonna go watch some porn and masturbate now because I really wanna have an orgasm or then my girlfriend looks sexy, let's have sex. That's spontaneous desire. In the beginning of a relationship, I'm not trying to say that women don't experience spontaneous desire. Many women do experience spontaneous desire, and often in the beginning of a relationship, women experience spontaneous desire. But most women also experience responsive desire. And responsive desire is different than spontaneous desire. Responsive desire has to respond to something that came before it. It has to emerge. It's not a light switch. It's more like a dimmer switch that needs to be, you know, gradually evoked. And so when we we come back to language, part of the difference between men and women 
is that men use language that often expresses their spontaneous desire and a sense of sexual immediacy or urgency. And I think that women would often respond more to language that's more in the responsive desire model that's about seduction, that's about simmering. It's a little more about turning that dimmer switch gradually as opposed to bringing all of your desire spontaneously. So I think that the difference in languages for men learning, again, the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire, and recognizing that even though they may be feeling something very immediate and have an immediate desire to become sexual, they have to engage more um, in a landscape of seduction. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because what men are doing is they're expressing what's happening to their body, right? Or expressing the things that are happening to them. But you have another human being who has a whole different sort of That's thing That's exactly happening, right, Chris. And you have to figure out how to connect with right, them. Right, you have to mentalize your partner. You can't say, oh, my version of desire and what I'm experiencing is what she's experiencing. And I'm assuming we're talking about heterosexual couples. Yeah right now as well is that is that right yeah, that yeah. we're largely yeah, yeah. yeah. um because i work with my clientele is 50 percent lgbtq so i'm in no ways trying to dismiss lgbtq uh experiences uh um, mine's about 20 percent, but you have okay. to beat. <laughs> um so yeah sex whether you're straight or gay or whomever you're with is not just about projecting your own experience of desire onto your partner it's about mentalizing potentially how they're experiencing desire and arousal and being very sensitive and responsive to that you talk about in your book the difference between procreation and pleasure and why penetration is overhyped and this is a, the same sort of world but can you expand on that yeah yeah i mean uh, you know we our uh, culture's sexual roots go back to the Victorian age. Uh, and back in the Victorian age, sex was really considered procreative in nature. Sex was considered a procreational act. Uh, not to say that sex wasn't enjoyable. It just wasn't conceptualized as being important that it was enjoyable, especially for women. Um, as sex has evolved in our culture, thankfully, we've moved from a purely procreational model to first a relational model, which is, oh, sex is more than just about 
procreation, it's actually important to a relationship. It brings affection, it brings attachment, it creates uh, connection. We have lovemaking, right? So we now have a relational model of sexuality, not just a procreational model. But we should also move beyond just a relational model and look to a recreational model. Because not all of us are having sex in the context of a relationship. Some of us are engaging in consensual non-monogamy. Some of us are enjoying casual sex. Some of us aren't partnered. Some of us are enjoying sex with just ourselves. Some of us may want to have a kind of sex with our partner that doesn't feel like lovemaking or doesn't feel always so uh, relational. And so there's a recreational aspect to sex as well. So I think that there's really three sort of big buckets for sexual experience, procreational, uh, relational, recreational. Some will also talk about a spiritual dimension. Um, uh, I hear that less often, um, but certainly there's a spiritual dimension to sexuality for some people. Um, so I focus on working with couples on developing what I call a rec-relational model, okay? Because I think Part of the problem that couples are facing these days is that we take this relational approach to sex. I've, I love you. I've fallen in love with you. I date you. We're going to make love. Uh, we're going to have a relational model of sexuality. Hmm. But I'm also getting kind of bored here or my temperament. I'm a little bit of a sexual adventure seeker. Um, how do I incorporate or integrate that into my relational view? And so I think that's when couples become vulnerable to Infidelity. I think that's when couples get bored with sex. That's when couples sort of retreat just into masturbation and self-pleasure. So I think it's really important, uh, not just that we've moved away from a procreational model of sex, but that we integrate a relational and a recreational model into rec-relational sex. It, it makes a lot of sense. One, one of the things that you mentioned a few times was the G-spot in the book. You call it the clitoral... Um, Cluster. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I forgot that. If, so, if somebody is listening to this and they want to find it, how do they find it? Okay. How to find the G spot. And the G spot is clitoral sort of tissue wrapping around uh, the urethra to create uh, something called the G spot, which was named after a guy named Ernst Grafenberg, who is attributed with first discovering the area. Okay. All that aside, imagine the vagina, uh, the entrance to the vagina is a doorway, okay? Imagine you are stepping into the doorway, just across the threshold, okay? Now look up, look at the ceiling of the vagina. Right there is the G-spot. That first sort of one inch to three inches, really, it's, it's really the first, in most women, the first inch or two inside the vagina up along sort of the, 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 the vaginal ceiling. Um, again, there is, um, you know, a membrane, uh, and tissue between, uh, the urethral sponge and the vagina. So it's often an area that responds to more pressure to direct stimulation. Uh, a lot of women find that the G spot is stimulated through, um, 
doggy style sex and you can imagine in doggy style sex uh, a woman is on hands and knees a guy is entering from behind often at a at an angle sort of it would be sort of an entering at a, at a i guess a 90-ish to 45 degree angle sort of uh, tilting a little downwards that's going to directly stimulate um, the g-spot that kind of friction against that area so flip a woman back over or and turn her back over and now she's in the missionary position on her back and a guy is penetrating her there's going to be less stimulation to the ceiling of the vagina the vagina and that area of the g-spot so it can be an area that's harder to directly stimulate in the missionary position or even when a woman is on top. So it's often a position that responds better to uh, doggy style or a man entering from behind or uh, what a reverse cowgirl where a woman would be on top but turned in the other way. Again, you want to sort of hit that or provide friction against that uh, area of the vaginal ceiling, often in combination with some direct clitoral stimulation. So if a guy is using his fingers, is right. it easy? Is he going to be able, be able to feel this? Sure. Just, um, feel it? Not necessarily. It's not going to feel so different than just any other part of the, at least the vaginal ceiling. It may feel different than um, the floor of the vagina or the left and right anterior walls. Um, so you won't feel it as much, but you can certainly manually stimulate it by inserting a couple of fingers inside the vagina, maybe while you're providing oral sex, cunnilingus, and just sort of lift your fingers up and provide a little bit of uh, friction and pressure against the vaginal ceiling. Uh, a lot of vibrators uh, come equipped uh, with both um, a clitoral stimulator as well as a curve because that curve provides G-spot stimulation. You started to talk about it already, but a big focus of your book or the focus of your book um, in a broader context is kind of lingus, yeah. right? And that yeah. was your master's solution <laughs> to figuring out how to... Sure. Yeah, and so my, my question was basically around like this inefficiency between sort of the way men and women orgasm, it takes women a lot longer. There's the, the stimulation is not direct, and so you argue that the solution is. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. that? Um, yeah, well, there have been a lot of studies to support that uh, oral sex is the most consistent way in which women uh, experience pleasure and uh, orgasm. Um, uh, there are a lot of women I meet who want more oral sex. Uh, there are a lot of women who feel that the relationship is sort of operating on a double standard, that guys expect fellatio or blowjobs but aren't always as comfortable giving the way they want to receive. And then certainly I meet men who would love nothing more than to provide more oral pleasure to their partners, but their partners are uncomfortable with it for one reason or another. Um, that has a lot to do with um, social conditioning, the idea that women will often think, oh, does he really, is he really enjoying this? Um, how do I look down there? How do I smell? Um, so I focus a lot on encouraging men to really um, make women or help women feel comfortable during oral sex and to know that there's vulnerability uh, in that uh, sex act sometimes 
um, for women. Um, but yes, I'm a huge champion of uh, the way of the tongue. Uh, again, there's a, a clitoral vaginal distance between the glands of the clitoris and the entrance to the vagina. And so most sexual positions provide little, if any, direct clitoral stimulation. And I think that oral sex, um, often in combination with manual stimulation, is absolutely a uh, often preferable way of consistently um, providing um, pleasure. One of the things that you wrote in the book, and I lo loved that quote, was that making love with your penis is like writing calligraphy with a magic marker. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really, yeah. really fun. Yeah, you can do so much with your, uh, with your tongue and, and, and your lips um, and your, the surface of your teeth and your gums. I mean, those are all vital, incredible tools in um, pleasuring um, a partner. And the nice thing is, um, again, that like, it's nice to sometimes just focus on the giving of pleasure and to enjoy that and allow yourself to get aroused by that. Sometimes when you're having intercourse, you can, you're focused on giving and receiving pleasure and you can be so overwhelmed by the pleasure that you're receiving that you really lose sight of giving. So I think oral sex is also an incredibly, is an incredible form of sexual mindfulness where you can really tune into your partner's arousal and kind of get into like a sexual flow state and really just focus on giving. It's also very powerful for men who um, worry about their performance, who may be suffering from uh, erectile dysfunction, particularly psychological erectile dysfunction, because they're so focused on, am I going to be able to gain, maintain an erection, use an erection well? To just be able to take that emphasis off of the penis, I think is incredibly liberating. You've used the word mindfulness a few times, and um, it's something that I've, I've begun to really get into um, for different reasons. But for somebody who's listening to this, can you talk about why mindfulness is important during sex? And also, what can somebody do to become more present when they are? Because oftentimes we're reacting to the future or expectations yeah. or the past or traumas. Yeah. So I'm not really a mindfulness-based psychotherapist. I'm going to give you that sort of caveat there. Um, to me, mindfulness is the ability to be present and in the moment and often to just be able to distract yourself um, from anxiety or from distracting thoughts. Uh, the brain, uh, the mind cannot really focus on two things at once. So for people who are focused or preoccupied with sexual anxiety or sexual performance, Mindfulness is a meaningful way of distracting themselves from that anxiety. Uh, so that's what I mean by sexual mindfulness. And I think um, a great way of getting present, getting aroused, getting into kind of that flow space where you're outside of sort of time and outside of your own anxieties is by tuning into your partner's pleasure the things that turn you on about your partner's pleasure. So it, again, I, it's noticing. It's noticing um, your partner's mouth and then kissing your partner's mouth. It's noticing your partner's breasts and touching your partner's breasts. It's noticing the way your partner is breathing and tuning into that breathing. It's noticing during oral sex 
the way your partner is responding and being in a dance and knowing when there are times that you want to sort of lead the dance and times you want your partner to lead the dance and getting so into the dance that you're not even thinking about who's who's leading or not. You're just in the dance and, and in the moment. Hmm, it's awesome. I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday in preparation for this podcast and we were just talking about sex and sex experiences and we were talking about oral and he's like, I usually just go down for a few minutes. How long, at what point should somebody stop giving oral? Uh, at what point should somebody stop giving oral? Well, I think the relevant question too is at what point should someone start giving oral? Because um, in many couples, when I hear about their sex script, it's sort of like clothes are off, little to no kissing, maybe some body touching, and then we're right into mutual oral i'm going down first or she's going down first and i think that oral sex especially for women and for men but especially for women is is a very intense um direct form of arousal um and if you're not aroused going into oral sex it's not going to feel good it's going to feel intense. It's going to feel uncomfortable. So I always look at oral sex not really as foreplay, but as sort of like an act two. If we're taking, if sex is sort of a, a three act structure, act one, act two, act three, what's your act one? What are you doing to create eroticism, seduction, to generate arousal, to stimulate that responsive desire? And then I would transition into oral sex and direct genital stimulation really is as, 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 um, once there's been a strong process of foreplay. So I would not be thinking of oral sex as, uh, foreplay leading up to intercourse. I would look at foreplay leading up to, um, oral sex. And so once you're there, once you have a partner who's really amply and substantially aroused and you're providing direct genital stimulation in the form of oral sex, how long should you be down there? Well, it becomes a question. Do you want your partner to have an orgasm? I mean, as a guy, as somebody who suffered from premature ejaculation, um, I want to make sure my partner has an orgasm. So I'm going to use oral sex either to um, have an experience with her where she's able to have an orgasm completely and then maybe transition into whatever I feel like doing uh, or whatever we agree I should be doing at that point. Um, sometimes I will want to get my partner, help my partner get into what I sort of call a 30 or 60 second window, where if I do transition into intercourse, um, I'm going to be able to last long enough for her to be able to have an orgasm because she's that much closer to having an orgasm. So if I'm a guy who suffers from erectile dysfunction at times, I may say, you know, let me just make sure she has an orgasm first and I don't have to worry about my own erection and then I'll take it from there. So I think it's kind of a, a, a subjective question and a lot of it depends upon your partner too. How comfortable is she with receiving oral sex? How comfortable is she having an orgasm from oral sex? You know, sex is also about training your neural network to respond in different ways to, to respond in specific ways to specific types of stimulation. And so you absolutely have to develop neural networks associated with orgasm through oral sex and you may be with a partner who's never had an orgasm from oral sex maybe she's had partner uh, orgasms from intercourse or maybe she's only had orgasms 
from masturbation and using a, a sex toy. Um, so you may have to invest in um, developing the neural circuitry to support the ways in which you each want to have orgasms. Does that answer the question? It does answer the question. And the part that I found really enlightening is that these things can be developed. Um, the neural circuitry? Yes. Absolutely. Um, I really look at sex... It's a little bit, I, I talk about in my books, I don't know if I get into it in She Comes First, but in some of my articles for CNN and whatnot, um, I talk about the pleasures and value of comfort sex. So often we're focused on sexual novelty, and novelty is fantastic, um, but there has to be a balance between novelty and familiarity and I sometimes compare sex to um, it's a it's a crude metaphor but let's just say learning how to drive a car okay when you're first learning how to drive a car you have to think about everything stepping on the gas stepping on the brake looking around signaling it's a pretty complicated experience that's using your prefrontal cortex to integrate all the stimuli that you're getting into the experience of driving once you really know how to drive and you know the route you're going on you don't even think about it, right? You don't even remember taking that drive. Your mind was elsewhere because those routines have really been baked into a different part of your brain. They're stored routines that are accessible now. In the same way with sex, you want to have sex scripts that become stored routines that are accessible during sex so that both you and your partner can relax and allow parts of your brain to sort of shut off so that you can there are studies that have shown that as women are going through the process of arousal and getting closer to orgasm that parts of the brain that are associated with stress and anxiety kind of shut down and go quiet so for women it's very important for parts of the brain to turn off in order for the sexual brain to turn on well if all you're doing is focusing on new sex and tell me about your fantasy or let's try this position or turn this way right you're incorporating novelty and your brain is trying to learn new routines you're not actually accessing the stored routines that have already have the neural circuitry associated with delivering pleasure so it's really a a little bit of a hybrid that's why i often suggest begin your sex routine with a lot of novelty maybe uh, a lot of fantasy. Start off really sharing hot fantasies, watching porn, enjoying, you know, kink, power, whatever it is you want. But then there's going to be a certain point where you're really going to want to access a stored script to actually get to orgasm. So I think it's a little bit of uh, that combination. Something else that you say in the book is that when somebody is, or when, when you first uh, you're engaging, you're creating arousal that you should wait a pretty prolonged period of time before you move towards the genitalia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I wrote the book in 2002. It was published in 2004. So I'm not going to stand by everything I said because my ideas also have changed, evolved, and my experiences have changed. But again, this is what I talked about, that direct genital stimulation should be your act two, you know, not your act one. You know, if you can engage in... 15 minutes of really hot foreplay, uh, kissing, touching, sharing fantasies, uh, eroticizing your partner, and then lead into direct gen genital stimulation, more than likely you're going to have a partner who's more aroused and closer to orgasm. 
You think around 15 minutes is around? Sure, 15 minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, whatever you really, you know, have time for. But I think, you know, a 15 minute minimum is is a good thing to shoot for. You've talked about some different plays. We've talked about foreplay in your book. You talk about core play. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what some of these? Well, we're really are? on it right now. You know, the idea that uh, oral sex, cunnilingus, isn't just foreplay. As you said, it's not just the thing that your part friend does for two to three minutes before he gets to intercourse, but to really recognize, hey, I'm going to get my partner really erotically turned on, physically stimulated, psychologically stimulated through foreplay, then I'm actually going to transition into something like cunnilingus. And cunnilingus isn't foreplay, it's core play. It's, it's, it can be a complete act of, of lovemaking in terms of leading your partner through those mid and later stages of arousal to orgasm that you don't have to transition to intercourse. So don't think of cunnilingus or oral sex as foreplay. Think of it as core play and also understand that it can be a more complete act of um, lovemaking. I want to talk a little bit about, you've already got into a little bit, but some of the, the parts of the female genitalia, right? So what is a vagina? What is a, a clitoris? Like what is a vaginal floor? Uh-huh. Right? Like um, what is a per- perineum? Right? Uh-huh. Is that t- t- yeah. Right? Well, I do have diagrams in the book and it's a little hard to describe without uh, diagrams. I mean, you know, you sort of have, uh, ooh, this is going to be a little hard. I mean, I guess if you're just looking at a vulva, And really the vulva is everything, all the external characteristics that you would see staring at a woman's uh, genitalia. So you're looking at a vulva and it's important to know that the vulva really contains most of the sensitive nerve endings that contribute to pleasure and to orgasm. So you don't have to worry so much what's inside a vagina. Be more concerned a little bit about what you're sort of looking at and seeing. So what are you seeing? You're seeing... um, Well, you're seeing a vaginal entrance. Okay. Um, As we discussed inside the vaginal entrance, sort of just right up there on the vaginal ceiling is a, is a G spot. Um, If you're staring at the vulva and you're looking above the vaginal entrance, um, you're going to see the clitoral glands, right? Um, what most men would just call her clit or the clitoris. Um, You're going to see an area between the vagina and the clitoris, right? Because the clitoris is two to three centimeters above the entrance to the vagina. So there's going to be um, um, some tissue there. And underneath um, uh, that that area, just below the clitoral uh, glands, or what you would think of as the clit, is actually a very sensitive area that responds to a lot of um, stimulation. And sometimes all you have to do... Um, is be still and provide a point of resistance. Um, if you think of a woman on top, the point of resistance is your pelvis, right? If you think of providing oral sex, the point of resistance um, could be the surface of your teeth or your gums or pressing against a, a tongue, which isn't exactly firm. If you think about um, a sex toy, 
um, she's going to be pressing a sex toy against that area. So you also want to think about pressure and resistance, uh, not just directly to the clitoris, but to the area just underneath the clitoris um, between the vaginal entrance um, and the clitoral glands, which is the front commissure. Now, if you worked your way um, uh, down the vaginal entrance and we're sort of now at the vaginal floor and we're looking downwards towards a woman's anus, there's also a lot of sensitive tissue uh, in the area of the perineum, which is between the bottom of the vaginal entrance uh, and the anus. There's a lot of uh, sensitive tissue that runs underneath uh, the skin that also responds to stimulation, whether it's with your tongue, with your uh, fingers, with um, uh, a sex toy. Um, so again, you know, you want to look at the vulva and you're also going to notice lips, right? There's inner labia and outer labia. Very sensitive nerve endings running through the inner labia and to a lesser extent the outer labia. But again, that whole vulva, V-U-L-V-A, think about the vulva much more than the vagina during sex. During uh, vaginal intercourse, again, you're two to three inches inside the vagina. You're not really encountering that many nerve endings that contribute to pleasure, nor are you really stimulating the vulva in its entirety or the clitoral network in its entirety. One of the things you said in the book is that I think it's there's over 8,000 nerve endings. In, yeah. yeah to, which is amount, and compared to the penis, it's like twice as much. That's, that's what gets stated, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. What is the difference between female ejaculation and female orgasms? So in men, orgasm and ejaculation are integrated into one function. Uh, a man ejaculates, he expels semen, uh, that's an ejaculation, and he experiences a lot of pleasure um, in the form of an orgasm. Uh, the orgasm is really uh, both a physical and a neurological event. And so those two things are, are integrated. And hence, ejaculation is an essential part of the male orgasm. Women um, don't need to ejaculate, right? Women need to receive ejaculate. And so from an evolutionary perspective, um, ejaculation wasn't really selected as an important characteristic of uh, female sexuality. Um, so women really do not consistently ejaculate or ever um, ejaculate. Some women, uh, now women of course the vagina needs to lubricate uh, and that's to protect the health of the vagina. If a vagina is not lubricated, sex is going to be very uncomfortable, painful, and potentially even damaging. And so you want to always ensure that your partner is amply lubricated, either through natural lubrication or artificial lubrication. Um, so lubrication is important, but female ejaculation is different than the uh, normal uh, lubrication that I'm talking about. Uh, in some cases, women will uh, either upon orgasm or sometimes before orgasm uh, ejaculate um, small amounts of uh, uh, liquid. In general, and again, I'm, 
I'm not trying to describe any woman's sexuality for her. It's up to each woman to talk about her own experience of her own sexuality. The women that I've talked to very often who do ejaculate will say that the ejaculatory part itself doesn't really enhance or take away from the pleasure in any way, and that many women don't even realize that they've ejaculated or have uh, released some liquid around orgasm or upon orgasm. Um, in looking at the actual contents of female ejaculate, it tends to contain, you know, trace elements of um, what in men would be considered uh, prostate fluid. Um, so it's really, um, you know, I, 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 female ejaculation is something that might happen, but it's not really something to aim for or plan around or incorporate into your sexual goals. I want her to ejaculate, or if she's ejaculated, it means she's had an orgasm or a certain type of orgasm or a more powerful kind of orgasm. And that way, I think it's a little bit of, um, you know, sort of a side road. It's important to know, right? Because the guys need to know where to keep their focus. <laughs> right. It's important to know that you shouldn't worry about it or create pressure or expectations around it. Is it the same thing as vaginal sweating? Um, no, vaginal sweating would just be more of uh, the actual sweating that comes from the porous tissue of the skin of the vagina and the um, area of the vulva associated more just with natural lubrication. There's something else that you said you were talking about, I don't forget exactly how you phrased it, but sort of take on what women's sexual experience, right? Sure. And in the book, you talk about how every woman has their own sexual fingerprint or vaginal finger. I forget exactly how you phrase sexual it. I think I would say that about men too, that men and women, we all have our unique sexual templates, things that turn us on and turn us off and, uh, fantasies and ways that we imagine or envision sex. We all have, you know, sort of our own unique sexual fingerprint. And I guess the trick is sort of learning about our own sort of unique sexual template as well as our partners, um, and integrating the two. And yes, I would never want to speak for anybody's experience of their sexuality. I've talked about my own views on female ejaculation and G-spot stimulation and psychogenic orgasms versus non-psychogenic. And I've had plenty of women write to me and say, well, this is bullshit. I have G-spot orgasms all the time. Or female ejaculation is the most pleasurable experience you're ever going to have. Or I can think my way to orgasms whenever I want to. So I'm not really taking issue with anybody's conception of their own sexuality. I'm just sort of speaking, you know, somewhat generally um, based on my own clinical experience and the research that I've encountered. And this reinforces the idea of the importance of presence and the importance of communication. Yeah. Right. So I, I did write a note here. I had foreplay, core play, more play. Um, and a question about the snuggle gap, right? Because we've talked about this distance between um, men and women, both how they orgasm, direct stimulation to a penis, guys eventually will orgasm, at least generally from what I understand. You might have a different perspective or, or wider perspective. Um, women during sex might not get that clitoral contact and, and may need it. So I mean, can you talk about these differences? And going back to the snuggle gap, yeah, guys tend to, when they're done, 
They, uh, they're ready to roll over mm-hmm. and take a nap, and women are like, okay. I'm ready to keep going. Well, I would say two things, you know. Is your version of sex, the sex that you're having in that moment, relational or recreational? If it's relational, then it's part of an overall experience of connection and, and attachment. And what do you do post-ejaculation or post-orgasm to continue to uh, embody that sense of connection and attachment? And the other thing I would say is to remember that um, sometimes, often for men, blood leaves the genitals after uh, orgasm much more rapidly than it does for women. So a woman's desire, you know, for men, what women probably need to understand is, oh, he's not being insensitive. He's just very quickly returned to the pre-aroused state uh, and his body is in a recovery mode. Um, He's not actually being insensitive or selfish. Uh, for, for men, what you may need to realize is that, oh, she just had an orgasm, but there's still blood circulating in her genitals, and that means she's going to be more likely to want to stay potentially connected in some ways. It might not be um, in terms of having to have sex again, but it might be in terms of wanting, you know, affection or connection. So, you know, if you are a heterosexual couple and you're both having orgasms and you're both having sort of a combination of relational and recreational sex, then you may want to consider that sex isn't over at the point of orgasm. For some of the guys who are listening to this, um, there's a lot of things that we've shared with them today that I I think are going to be useful. But for that gap, some of them are going to have anxieties, right, around giving oral sex, and whether it's STDs, um, whether it's cleanliness. In the book, you talk about how um, it's the same bacteria around female genitalia that's in yogurt. Like, how, how does it, how does a guy work past some of these anxieties? And are some of them real? And and they're real anxieties, where they tied to sort of real things that they should be concerned about. I think that people have anxiety all the time, and people have assumptions about sex and uh, and expectations. And the thing is, when you're having sex with another person. Um, it's not about just your assumptions or your views of how sex should go. It's about creating new sex scripts together and new sex menus together. And I think um, I would encourage men, uh, if you have uh, anxiety, um, to get good information and data that... um, might help you to lessen and diminish your anxiety around, say, hygiene of certain sex acts or how to contract or not contract uh, sexually transmitted infections. Generally, getting good information is going to be helpful in diminishing anxiety. Being communicative with your partner. And I think, you know, putting yourself through the motions and getting on the other side of that anxiety and mastering your anxiety and not being somebody who's mastered by your anxiety. Dr. Kerner, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. And for those who are listening, definitely buy his book. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, I've, I've definitely made some of the mistakes that, um, so have I, about, trust me. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't have written the book if there weren't a lot of mistakes made. Yeah, I've, I've screwed up some really awesome relationships because I was in my head and, and not present. And so I wanted to bring a Dr. Kerner on here to share his experiences. So go out and buy his book. I mean, I usually am not so forthright about this, but I definitely think that you should. A lot of the stuff he even talks about regarding 
STDs and safety and smells and tastes and hygiene. He covers it all. So, um, but thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been incredible. My pleasure. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.